<laughs> bit late today. Sorry about that. Um, I might not do all four passages today. Not feeling really, really great if I'm honest. Um, but let's see how it goes. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> uh, had fried chicken. It was nice for dinner. Okay, so today is Monday, March the 8th, and this is the Daily Bible Reading Show. Um, I read four different passages every day from the Bible. Um, that's all I do. And today we are reading Exodus chapter 19, Luke chapter 22, and maybe if I'm up to it, we'll carry on with the other two passages, Job chapter 37 and 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, and I'll begin by praying. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray for your abiding presence with us in your word. Help us to never take it for granted that you're with us um, in by your spirit and by your word when you speak to us. And so help us to treasure that, help us to be wary of that, and help us to commune with you, to talk with you in prayer, and to respond to you in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Amen. So, Exodus chapter 19. Okay, Exodus 19. Hmm. Okay. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the, the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a loud blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, like a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This earthquake. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, "Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish." Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, "The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, 'Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it.'" And the Lord said to him, "Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through." To come up to the Lord, lest He break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. <clears throat> so what do we have here? Yeah, what do we have here? Okay, so they reach Sinai after three moons, three, the third new moon. So it could be about two to three months after they left Egypt. They finally reach their destination. It's kind of like when your GPS in your car says you've reached your destination, meaning. The point of the Exodus and the salvation was not just for them to get away from slavery, to be free. Yay! You know we're free, but there was this journey that ended with this destination, this mountain of God. So all this while, God said that you will bring them here and they will worship me on this mountain. That's what God said to Moses. And so they've reached that destination. They've reached this mountain. Essentially, the essentially the point is they've reached God. This mountain, you know, this very terrifying sight, <laughs> thunder and lightning, and this earthquake. This is what it meant for them to meet with God. <laughs> this very scary, terrifying sight. And God Himself says, you know, if you touch the mountain, you go up the mountain, you'll die. So it is um, very, very fearful. But yeah, they reached God essentially by reaching this mountain. So they've. Um, Came into the wilderness of Sinai, verse one, verse two. They set out from Rephidim. They came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. They set up tents, so they're going to stay here uh, for about a year. They're not not going to move anywhere. So this is going to be the location in which they're going to commune and worship God, and God is going to reveal Himself to them, give them the Ten Commandments and all His laws, and they're also going to build another tent for God Himself. So they're all living in tents. Um, around this mountain, you know, six hundred thousand men, meaning about one two million people all together, including women and children. And it says there, there Israel encamped before the mountain. Verse two, while Moses went up to God. So you imagine this whole scene: all the people at the base of the mountain, and one guy, Moses, he himself going up to God, and God speaking to him. Verse three. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, "Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel: 
Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God speaks to Moses to speak God's words to his people. So he said, obey my voice, verse 5. Keep my covenant, verse 5. Meaning, you know, this is what it means for you to be my people. But it has to be said that God himself has saved them, brought them to this position in order to serve him, in order to obey him and not the other way around. And what I mean is this. They are not obeying God in order to be saved. They are already saved. They have already been given freedom. They've already been made God's people. And therefore, they've been saved in order to obey Him. They're not, so it's not salvation by works. If I obey, I'm saved. But it's the fruit of salvation to display the works of salvation. I am saved, therefore I obey God's commands. Hence, verse 4, you've seen what I did. I bore you on eagle's wings. I saved you. Therefore, verse 5, obey my commands. And as a result, God promises, you will be my treasured possessions among all other peoples. Compared to everyone else, you are special because you, be you belong to me. And he says, even though all the earth is mine, all, all the peoples are mine, but you will be the special treasured possession because you shall be to me, verse 6, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the whole nation itself is meant to somehow represent God to everyone else. You know, the same way that Moses represents God to them. So they are to be the, these priests in the way that they live out God's laws and obey him. So other nations will look at that and go, oh, so that's it. Well, that's what it means for God to live among us. That's what it means to obey God's word because they look at them as priests, as representatives of God. So that's the first thing we see. They come to this mountain, they come to God, and they've been saved in order to obey God's word. So that's the first point. And the second thing we see is Moses. Moses' peculiar role as this mouthpiece, as this spokesman for God. Verse 7, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord commanded him. All the people answered them and said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe you also. So notice that Moses goes back and forth, back and forth. <clears throat> so verse 7, Moses goes back to the people and tells them everything that God just said. The people say, okay, we will obey this word. And Moses goes back to God and tells God everything the people said. So he goes back and forth, back and forth. And God promises Moses, okay, I'm going to come down, to the, down, come down in a thick cloud so that when people hear me speak, they will hear me speaking to you. And they will know that everything that I say to you, you are saying to them. And therefore, this is God's intentional act in val val 
validating validating Moses's role as his prophet, as his chosen spokesman, because so that they will know that I've chosen you to speak to them on my behalf. And why why does he do this? Well, again and again, the people have been rebelling against Moses and rebelling against God. You remember all those times when they didn't have water, they didn't have food. They they said, you know, you brought us out here to kill us. They they thought they were complaining against Moses. But essentially, you're complaining against God because Moses has all this authority that's been invested into him through God. But also, a second thing is that every time God speaks through Moses, they need to realize that this is God speaking through Moses. You know, it's not just Moses giving them good advice, good wisdom from his years as an elderly person. No, it's not not that. Everything he says, he's conveying on behalf of God. And there's a significance here because. Today, you know, we don't have a Moses. Um, today, we have God's word in the Bible, and so everything that God speaks to us is still through His word. Uh, he speaks it through His Spirit that He's put put into us. He speaks it through Jesus, or rather, about Jesus. It points us to Jesus as the ultimate Moses, the ultimate representative between God and man. But still, you know, He speaks it through. You know, through the Bible, it's still His word, His authority, and He calls for us to respond with the same obedience. So, verse nine: When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, "Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day." <clears throat> for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around. So God is kind of like warning them, you know, I am holy; <laughs> you cannot come near me. And if anyone were to come up the mountain, they must be killed. That's why He says, "Set limits on the mountain." And verse twelve, He gives this instruction: Take care not to go up the mountain or even to touch the edge of it. Don't even touch it. Because whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death; no hand shall shall touch him, or he shall be stoned or shot. And this no hand shall touch him means no nobody shall go and get him back. You know so this person is running up. No, no, no. I go. I go fetch him back. So, no, 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 no. The way in which you're to stop that person is by stoning a person, throwing stones, or shooting him, and not with. They didn't have guns then. I mean, shooting with an arrow. Pew. Yeah. So, so seriously, whether it's a man or a beast, verse thirteen, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up the mountain. So Moses went down to the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, made them holy, made them separated the people, this、um, made them holy, and they washed their garments. <laughs> Twice it says in verse. Ten and verse fourteen, they need to wash their clothes, do laundry, and they have three days to do this. <laughs> and he said to the people, "Be ready on the third day. Do not go near a woman." And here it shows that God is extremely, extremely holy, and that coming into contact with this holy God will result in our death, <laughs> because we are not holy, because we are sinful, and therefore there needs to be this preparation in order to come into contact. With God is just reminding us just who God is and who we are. He is holy; we are not. And this also is again another word that Moses is saying to them. You know, God says it to Moses, and Moses is saying, "Please, please take this seriously." And that's why God wants him to to listen to to Moses because it's for their own good. So, three days passed. 
they've done their laundry, and now everything that God says, you know, in terms of Him coming down and speaking to Moses, that's going to happen now in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Try to imagine that thunder and lightning, so that sound and that light show. And then the thick cloud on the mountain, kind of like a volcano, is smoking on the top of the mountain, covering all the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. They were so fearful. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Oh, wow. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They're going, okay, okay, I'm not going to step a, take a step further. And Okay, all right, okay, I'm just going to stand here. And they can see, they can see the light there. They can hear the, the sound of the trumpets. Everyone trembled. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. There's all this description of this huge, huge mountain, whole mountain covered in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire so <laughs> lightning and 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 thunder and then smoke and now there's fire and the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly so they could even hear it and feel it underneath their feet you know this earthquake coming in the presence of god how awesome that kind of experience but it's also how fearful and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder <coughs> so it just got more and more intense until and it builds up to this point until it builds up to moses speaking imagine that you know this whole light and sound show builds up builds up builds up builds up to a crescendo and the high point of this encounter of god is with his word with his voice moses spoke and god answered him in thunder and it shows again, you know, that awesomeness of meeting God in His Word. You know, that's how God comes into contact with us. That's how God communicates His presence with us. It's in His Word, but more specifically, His speaking His Word to His servant, to Moses. Moses spoke, and God answered Moses out of the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And then we have this very interesting conversation between Moses and God, which essentially recaps the previous conversation. They've, they've already said everything here, that nothing is new. But God seems kind of paranoid. <laughs> paranoid. Let's see what, how, why, what I mean by this. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Meaning, maybe they're still curious. You know, they want to take selfies. Oh, wow, look at me. I'm by the mountain of the Lord. <laughs> so, go down, please. Go back down and warn them. And, 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 and let the priests who, who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And then Moses says to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. So essentially, Moses is telling God, you already told us these things. And, and that's why they're not going to come up. You know, they, they've already been warned. You've already said this. But why is it that God says, okay, go down and tell them again? It's because the warning is really real. 
you know, God will punish and will break out against those who come near to him in unholiness. Meaning, in a sense, God is more concerned about his word than us. God is more concerned that we obey his word than we are. And it's all for our good. You know, when God says these things, it's not a power play to say, oh, I'm God, you better listen to what I say. He could take that position. But he's also saying, I'm God. I'm speaking to you these words for your good, for your protection. And that's why he's so concerned that they listen to Moses and that Moses goes down and remind them again and again of everything he said to them. Sorry, just there's just a bit of fried chicken on my keyboard. <laughs> yeah, so he's just so concerned for their welfare and for their obedience to his word for their own good. And so, and verse 24, And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now verse 24, suddenly is, there's a change. Because previously only Moses is supposed to go up, but now suddenly Aaron is supposed to go up with him. Did you notice that? Verse 24, he says to Moses, go down and take Aaron with you. How come Aaron can go up with him? And uh, here it foreshadows the ministry that Aaron will have as God's high priest. You know, Aaron and his sons, and perpetually someone has to be a descendant of Aaron to fulfill this role, will take on this position as high priest. That means only one person will have this position of high priest who will come before God once a year in his tent and to offer sacrifices on behalf of the whole nation. And that's Aaron. And what we see here in terms of God and Aaron and the mountain and the people are different, different segments of access to God. And this is, in a sense, going to be mirrored in the building of the tabernacle, in the building of the temple. In the temple, uh, there are actually different, different levels of access leading up to the most holy of holies. That's the most uh, holy section of the temple where God dwells by his ark. You know, that, that's God's mercy seat. That's his throne. And here only the high priest can enter. And then after that is the priests. And after that is the men. After that is the women. And after that is the Gentiles, people who are not of the people of Israel. And it's not to say that therefore they're like first class, second class, third class, that kind of thing. That's not, that's not the point. But saying again, God's holiness is such that he can only meet with you know it, it's for our own good that if we come into contact with him you know we will perish in the midst of his holiness but another way to look at it is that because of moses aaron can come into god's presence because of aaron he's able to offer sacrifices for the people and as we've seen because of the people they're called a holy priesthood they will mediate god's presence to all the nations so it's showing the role of the mediator the mediator brings people on the outside closer in, closer in, closer in. Because we start out over here. We don't want to come to God. We are unholy. And if we ever do accidentally come into his contact, we perish. But because of this mediation, because of this priesthood, because of this middle person, we are able to come closer and closer and closer to God. And ultimately, it's foreshadowing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings us directly into the presence of God. So what we have here, right in the beginning of this temple, mountain, worship, encounter with God and His holiness and this volcano, this kind of thing, 
is the beginnings of this encounter with God in His holiness, in His love, and in His mercy in providing a mediator, a priesthood that will bring us closer and closer to Him. So we see this again in the mountain. You know, God brings them, saves them, so they can bring them to Him. God provides them Moses, who will act as His mouthpiece and His, you know, that that middle person who will mediate and speak His word to them. But finally, God, you know, God Himself is concerned for us that we obey His word and that He provides for us this this ultimate mediator in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will come and take our place in taking our sin, but then give us his righteousness and give us that access to God that he has as God's son in Jesus Christ. Okay, all right, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't do that very well, I feel. Um yeah, I, I released I, I plucked out an old um video I did. Uh, this was a briefing for a bunch of study Bible study leaders. Um uh, exactly a year ago, I think. Yeah, exactly a year ago, I think I released that. And so I re-released that today based on Exodus chapter 19. And I think that's a lot clearer. I think I, I did a better job there. Um, so have a look at that. But yeah, so but this is a good reminder for me looking at this passage again. Um, yeah, I think I should also mention that uh, Peter makes reference to this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here is a direct quotation in Exodus chapter 19, apply to Christians today. Now, we are a holy priesthood. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a people of God's treasured possession. And meaning like the people of Israel, we are meant to mirror God's holiness and God's love to the nations through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as it says here, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there, yeah, so that's the direct application to us today as Christians. Um, um, Peter plucks out Exodus 19 and applies it to us today. Yeah. Cool. I'm really tired. Uh, I think I think I really will just read this one other reading and then we'll call it a day. Um, I know that's, actually, I, I know it's going to be a really long reading, so I think, <laughs> I think this is all I can manage. Okay, so Luke chapter 22. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the presence absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest house where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And he began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, uh, that you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Um, Peter said to them, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, there, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he said to the disciples and found, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. 
And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kill him, uh, to kiss him. Sorry, I am I'm tired. Sorry, to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a, with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his, his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance, and when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I, don't, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval, about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, asking him, prophesy, who is, that? who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they say, then he said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Yeah. I'm just going to focus on just this one curious verse. Uh, remember where Jesus says, Satan is Satan is trying to sift you like wheat. Okay, here it goes. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And here my footnote says, that the Greek word for you, which is twice in this plural, you know, sift you and have you, it's in the plural. And uh, in verse 32, is in a singular. Meaning here, Jesus is speaking to all of them. You know, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. Satan has asked that, you know, uh, he be able to tempt you and lead you away. 
Earlier on, we saw that Satan entered Judas as he went to the priests and took money in order to betray Jesus. And Satan probably says, I have Judas. I'd like to have the rest as well. And Jesus' response is to pray for Simon. And interestingly, verse 32 is in the singular, so it's just for Simon. Verse 32, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus' prayer for Peter is meant to preserve him from Satan, preserve him from this temptation, from this fall that Satan is trying to cause him to stumble into. And once he has been delivered from Satan, he's meant to go back and strengthen the brothers. Uh, now, Peter obviously doesn't take this seriously. He says, Lord, I'm ready to die. <laughs> I'm ready to go to you, go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus then makes that pronouncement, you know, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So wait, hang on. You know, uh, Jesus has prayed for Peter, but Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. And that's what happens. It's so striking that the third time when he is still speaking his third denial, the first time he denies it to this girl, the second time to the guy, he says, man, um, Sorry, this man. And the third one says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Man, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And as he was still saying this, it says two things. The rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at him. Meaning actually, all this conversation was happening while Peter could see Jesus being insulted, being spit on, being tortured, being mocked, being beaten. As Jesus was actually being, uh, well, as, he, as he was suffering, as he was being beaten, Peter was thinking of himself. He was, he was so scared to be found out. He was connected with that person. That he, he could actually see him there, and Jesus could see him. And that's when Jesus denied, when Peter denied Jesus that third time. Jesus heard it. Jesus knew it. He foretold it. But Jesus could hear it, and therefore Jesus looked straight at Peter. And what a... <laughs> if looks could kill, you know, what, what a look that must have been for Peter. And that's why, you know, he immediately went out and he wept bitterly. Uh, but the question is still this, you know, Jesus prayed for Peter and still this happened. Meaning, you know, for us to withstand that temptation or that, that you know, that pull from Satan himself, um, the most important thing is that, you know, we turn back and we repent of those times when we have. Now, the best thing is to flee from Satan, to flee from sin. But, you know, when we've fallen, the most important thing, you know, verse 32 again, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Is that turning. It's not to keep on going on in that direction of sinning against God to still not turn back and to think that it's too far away from being able to repent and being able to say sorry. No, no, no. Jesus' prayer means for you, Peter, and specifically, he knows that he's going to deny him, he's going to fail him, but still there's this opportunity to turn back. And you know, if that's the result of Jesus' prayer, how much more for us? You know, maybe you're in a position whereby you know that uh, maybe you've had that warning that says, you know, if you do this, you know, you're going to regret it and it's it's really, really going to be very painful, but you fell anyway. And, you know, there's still always that opportunity to turn back. It was the case for Peter 
And that's why it's here in, in the Gospels. You know, obviously he told this story, and as painful and as shameful it was, you know, he told this story. Um, but he turned back because Jesus prayed for him, and Jesus restored him, and Jesus foretold both his betrayal but also his repentance. Yeah, I just wanted to, wanted to pick that out in this whole long chapter. So many things you could say, uh, but yeah, I'll resist from doing that. Uh, really tired. Uh, but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to try. I'm just going to read on. Yeah, might not be perfect. So I do apologize in advance because I really am feeling not too great. So I'm just going to read this slowly. I might not say too much about this if that's okay. So this is Job chapter 37. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. This is Elihu speaking. Uh, reminds me of that, again, God speaking through the thunder in Exodus chapter 19. Sounds like that. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to snow, he says, fall on the earth, likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals out the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. So I think the idea is that, you know, it's raining, oh, heavy rain, so you have to run indoors. And therefore, sealing up the hands means you aren't able to, you know, work. You can't put your hand to the plow. And then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens, so everyone's going indoors. Verse 9, from its chamber comes the whirlwind and coal from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. So God is behind all these amazing acts of nature. Hear this, O, jo o Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? <coughs> You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind, can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? <clears throat> Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the sky, on the light, when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. So, so much of this is good, you know, is right. You know, God is behind all these amazing works of nature. And there is a sense in which seeing this display of beauty and of power should silence us as men. But the way in which Elihu twists this, and where is it again? Verse 14, Hear, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. The way he twists this is that 
he uses it as a way to ignore Job's pleas before God. It's almost like saying, uh, please stop praying. I'm singing this hymn to God. Or please, will you stop bothering me with your complaint, with your issue, because I have to go to church, that kind of thing. And so he uses something that is right in a sense, true in a sense, um, um, but he uses it to diminish someone who has equally a right claim and a right issue to bring before God. It's, it's, it's cl just closing your ears and go la, 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 that kind of thing. I want to sing my worship song. I want to go to church. I want to listen to my sermon. I don't want to worry about this kind of problem that you have with God because I don't want to think about it. And so <clears throat> it's, it's kind of a shame because obviously Elihu has this right awe of God but this, this very low estimation of man, this very low disregard for his friend, and he obviously doesn't love his friend. He says, oh, I claim love God, but he hates his friend. And that's such a tragedy when it happens because it happens only amongst uh, religious people, people who have you know, all this knowledge of God, they're able to write poetry about God, but they just turn a deaf ear when their friend, when their buddy comes to them and says, you know, I have, I have this issue, I have this problem, please can you help me with it? And you just go, you know, I don't have time for you. And that's such a shame. Okay, so that was short. That was good. That, okay, let's try, let's try to finish, finish today's reading then. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And this is Paul writing um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we were in Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. For God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. <laughs> yeah, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As this, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It sounds like Peter. You know, there's this uh, godly grief that he experienced. Rightly, you know, he wept and he felt really bad about this. Godly grief that leads to salvation, but without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. 
And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still the more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, a lot of grieving, <laughs> a lot of rejoicing. And the grieving is because he was worried. You know, he's worried that you wrote this really tough letter to the church. He said, oh, wow, no, did, it, did I grieve them too much? But it had a desire, its desired effect. He was writing this church, you know, talking about this really sad issue. You know, hey, you need to turn back. This is not something you can continue, continue in, in this sin. And they got the message. And so Titus was the person who either delivered that letter or got the response to that letter back to Paul. I think the second is probably more likely. So they got the letter and then they went, oh, wow, you know, this is so bad. You know, we can't carry on like this. And so Titus brought back news that they actually repented because of this letter. And therefore, they had this grief, but Paul calls it, verse 10, this godly grief that leads to repentance. And he compares it with worldly grief, because worldly grief produces death. <laughs> what is it? You know, worldly grief, you know, where you feel, oh no. And both, both, both situations feel, oh no. You know, godly grief is, oh no, I've sinned against God. But worldly grief, you feel, oh no, I've sinned against, you know, the world. And therefore, you're seeking the approval of the world. You're trying to get back into the good books of the world. But that just produces death. But, you know, godly grief is where you realize you've offended God. You've fallen short of his glory. And you go, okay, okay I, I, I think I need to turn back. And that's why it's talking about repentance. And that produces salvation without regret. You know, it's, you, it might be painful, but you go, Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I turned back. So you don't have, you don't regret doing that kind of repentance and turning back to God. And you can see it. You can see the results of this. It's produced this eagerness, this indignation, this fear, this longing, this zeal. What punishment, even the punishment. <laughs> they, they took action. In, in, in other words, they actually repented and you could see that they, they carried out the necessary actions in accordance with that repentance. So at every point, you prove yourselves innocent in the matter. So, yeah, so therefore we are comforted, verse 13, he says. And so, yeah, it's, um, in a sense, this is not one of those passages that has a lot of theological content. It does in the sense of, you know, what does repentance produce? You know, it produces, you know, this godly salvation. But here we, we don't miss just how connected Paul is to this church. You know, he felt grieved thinking, oh, wow, you know, was this too harsh? <laughs> Did, was I too hard on them? But at the same time, you know, this was, this was a really serious issue. And, you know, here, this kind of wrestling that goes on inside Paul, and it was a result of love. He, he really, really loves this church such that, you know, he was just waiting and waiting and waiting for Titus to come back with news. You know, did they really respond the way that I hope they'd respond to my very hard letter that I wrote to them? And, you know, this is, and what we have here is a pastor who really, really feels and responds and has this internal turmoil based on how, um, you know, how a parent would feel for their kids if their kids went off the rails, that kind of thing. So it's the kind of right uh, turmoil and anguish that a pastor should feel for their own people when they are they're sinning, you know, when they've rejected him, when they've rejected God, that kind of thing. 
and you know the kind of turmoil that uh, the church will feel as well when they see that their their pastor is speaking to them in a very passionate way, and that it actually leads them towards this grief, but godly grief that leads to salvation. And so, you know, it shows the roles and the place for emotions in ministry. Uh, you can't be too British about the way in which you deal with sin. And, you know, there needs to be this internal um, anguish when it comes to dealing with people who are, you know, breaking God's laws and who are turning away from the church or turning away from the gospel. You can't just say, okay, I'll tell you this and then you do with it what you want. Yeah, but actually there's a place for going no, you know, I, I really, really need for you to see this. You know, I, I feel this in my soul. I can't sleep. <laughs> I'm having stomach aches, that kind of thing. And that's um, that's actually a mark of a more loving pastor than what you would call, you know, a person who, person who is feeling too emotional. Actually, that's Paul. You know, that's Paul. He, he actually feels this way. And uh, it means that you're... You can only deal with so much at a time, but it means that you're dealing with it in a godly way. You know, um, don't be too professional about the way in which you deal with people in your church. You know, not just okay, next, next, next. What's what? What appointment? And then just try to maximize and make it more more efficient a way in which you deal with as many people as possible. But feeling this way means you will always be weighed down. <laughs> You'll always be, you know, he calls himself. You know, he says, our bodies had no rest, verse 5. We were afflicted at every turn. So he had these external pressures dealing with uh, external situations, but still internally he was still anguishing about this particular church. And so he still had to do mission, but he was still doing pastoral work. He still had to preach the gospel, but he was still worrying about, you know, the condition of this church who already had the gospel. So it's both. And you can't say that, oh, I've had enough, and therefore I concentrate on this only. Paul had, you, you always have too much on your plate to juggle and you'll always be too tired to deal with everything at this at the same time but maybe that's a mark of a good and godly pastor as opposed to one who can't handle this work that's a mark of someone who really cares and loves his church as opposed to someone who you know just is able to like get a lot of things done but really at the end of the day does this person actually love the people he's serving and paul obviously does he really really does love this church and you can see it through his grief. <laughs> you can see it through his anguish. You can see it through his, you know, through, through his emotions. So that's good. That's good. I think there, there's, a, there's a place for the emotional, the, the pastor who doesn't have enough sleep, the overworked pastor. Not always the ideal thing. But, you know, otherwise don't do ministry. You know, this, this is just what's involved. This is what it looks like to love people. You know, any people, not just just not just as a pastor, but anyone, you know, as, you know, your kids, your spouse, your parents. It means constantly, you know, forgiving one another, constantly wrestling with your emotions for one another and constantly, you know, coming back to God again and saying, you know, God, please restore us. Please forgive us. Please bring us back together. And the result is, you know, rejoicing and refreshing. You know, we rejoice all the more at the joyous Titus. His spirit has been refreshed by you, and we boasted about you, and we weren't put to shame. You know, this kind of um, eager trust and hopeful trust that, you know, people who have been, you know, um, people who have been split apart, whether church splits or relationship splits, there's always that hope, you know, if only things could come back again, how good it will be. You know, that hope is a good hope to have. And whether it's realized in this life or the next, you know, that's that's a godly kind of like gospel hope. 
you know, that broken parties come back together and are reconciled. And there, there's forgiveness, there's rejoicing, there's refreshment. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. It's, it's, it's great to see that happen in the end. Okay, now I've really come to the end myself, so I really need to pray and end this. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful end when we see broken parties coming back together in reconciliation and in rejoicing. And Lord, that's the gospel. You know, we who are enemies, we who are far away, you brought us near. And you paid the price for this. You know, Jesus died. You know, he was punished. He was squashed for our rebellion and our sin. And because of that, you know, even though we may not feel like it, even though we might feel at times, you know, we are far from it, we have received this reconciliation. We are forgiven and we are your children. So thank you for this reminder. Uh, help us, you know, to be, you know, um, to mediate this reconciliation to others, to call upon them as well, to be reconciled to you, to be reconciled to God and to respond to this wonderful, wonderful offer of salvation, of forgiveness, of peace, of refreshment, of reconciliation. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Ah, so we made it. We actually did cover all four passages today. Praise God. Yeah, thanks for sticking with me as well. Bye.